Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which has held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I was just asked recently, uh, you know, what's involved in becoming a pastor in, the, in our denomination, the PCA. And so I was explaining the process to this gentleman uh, who's maybe thinking about as he retires from the military of, of going into the ministry. And uh, I was telling him the process that's very involved in the, in the requirements that are there. And then ultimately, there's a testing uh, uh, time where you go before different elders and you are tested as to your proficiency in, with the Greek and Hebrew, the original languages of the Bible. You are tested and quizzed orally and in written form on uh, doctrine and on the, the, the sacraments of the baptism and Lord's Supper. And you're also tested on your knowledge of the Bible. And that's always an interesting time in the ordination exam process because um, at one point you'll be in a room with a bunch of other elders and pastors and they'll start peppering you with questions like, you know, uh, you know who was Abraham's wife? Where, uh, what? Give us the book in the chapter where you would find the Day of Atonement. Give us the book in the chapter where you would find the new covenant. Give us the book and the chapter where you get the idea. And so they quiz you for all the way through the Bible. And then the, the part that I actually loathed the most was, you know, give us an outline for the book of Isaiah. I mean, how big is the book of Isaiah? And off the top of your head, you have to give an outline, you know, of the book of Isaiah or the book of Psalms or the book of Acts. And one that they, uh, I think, probably always gets asked is, what's your outline for the book of Romans? And so that was actually a question for me, and I knew it. I, I was okay with it because I had learned an outline long, long time. I think maybe this went back to maybe childhood where I learned a breakdown of the book of Romans. It's a simple little outline 
That L starts with S because I was raised Baptist and Baptists like to alliterate. And, uh, and they all start with S, right? Sin is from chapter one uh, to chapter three, verse 20. And then the, top, the theme shifts to salvation from 320 to the end of chapter five and sanctification in chapter six to eight. And then the sovereignty of God, which is gonna be an interesting series of messages in chapters nine through 11. And then the book concludes with our Christian service and how we live this out in service to God and within the church. A simple outline. And you can see that where we are right now is we, in this chart, we are smack dab in the middle of sanctification. And just to remind you, sanctification is that doctrine that deals with us becoming more and more like Jesus as God's grace begins to rule every aspect of our lives. And just as our, our justification is dependent upon God's grace, so too our sanctification is dependent upon God's grace. And so when we think about that, it may kind of be a little confusing that here in the middle of this section of sanctification in chapter 7, Paul uh, brings us to the law. It kind of seems like it may be a little out of place to talk about the law when we know that sanctification and justification is so dependent upon God's grace. But the more we understand what Paul is getting at here in chapter 7, the more we will appreciate God's grace and the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. So let's start this study of these verses that deal with the law by first asking a couple of very important questions that we derive from the text, and then we'll conclude with an important truth that brings life to all of us. First question is this, and and I'm asking this question because I don't want to assume anything this morning. What was the law, and why was it so important to the Israelites? I mean, we have children in here this morning. Children, you may not understand why did God give us the law, but then again, I think oftentimes uh, adults get confused, children, so you're not uh, all alone in this matter of being confused about the law. You know, in Exodus chapter 19, we see God uh, delivering the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. And before Mount Sinai, he establishes a covenant with them. And the way he establishes this covenant, this contract, an agreement between the people of Israel and himself is he gives them the law. The law is there's 613 individual laws. Uh, That's the count, and they are divided into three categories. So for example, there's the moral law of God. Uh, All of us, or most of us, are probably familiar with the moral law. Uh, Fill in the blank. You can fill it in however you want, okay? Your answer is not going to be probably wrong. Thou shalt not... Okay, good, all right? Uh, One more time. Some of you just stood there and looked at me like I'm a stone. You can't do that this morning. Thou shalt not... Kill, I heard. I heard lie. I heard, I didn't hear any commit adulteries. So that's uh, interesting. Uh, You know, thou shalt not covet. Uh, We have all of these moral laws that are in the, in the Bible, okay, as part of, this, of the law of God. Um, the laws, the Ten Commandments, the laws that govern our interpersonal relationships, the laws that talk about how we love God and we love others, this is the moral law of God. And then we have the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law, where all the laws and instructions that dealt with the worship of God, in particular the tabernacle or the temple, uh, this gets into the feast days and the sacrificial system and the, the 
diets and, and all of this. This is the ceremonial law. And the third category would be considered the civil law. Uh, these, I mean, this is a nation, the Israelites. And so just like we have laws, uh, God gave them laws so that their nation could be governed in a just way. And so these are the laws that have to do with, you know, like how to do trials and, and evidence and witnesses and sanitation and a marriage and divorce and all those kinds of things are wrapped up in the civil law. So why did God go to such detail giving him these instructions? I mean, it's an important question. Why do you need to stop the Ten Commandments? You know, uh, one of the interesting things is I was raised in a system that believed and taught um, and still teaches, depending upon the flavor of the system, that essentially the Israelites got saved. They, they, they got right with God and they became part of the family. They, they received their salvation by obeying the law. And this is a completely erroneous teaching. This isn't why God gave the law. It wasn't for them to keep it so that they could be saved. Uh, the Bible is consistent. In fact, if you look at Romans chapter 1, the theme verse of the book of Romans, where Paul says, the just shall live by faith. Who is he quoting there? He's quoting the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. That always God's people come into relationship with him by his grace through faith. So obedience to the law was always meant to be evidence of the faith of the Israelites. It was the rule of life that God put before them as a distinct people that evidenced that they were followers of Jehovah that they were in covenant with Jehovah, that they loved him and that they were worshiping him and that they were true to him. And so the law wasn't the way, the means for salvation. The obedience to the law was the evidence, was supposed to be the evidence of salvation. Now, of course, this changed through the years. And this is what happened, had happened by the time of Paul, where the law had become the means to salvation. But this was not its purpose. Its purpose was really to separate them, to make them a distinct people, a distinct nation from all the other nations, so that they would point people to Jesus Christ. They were to be a light to the nations. And the law of God was to change them and show what it meant to be in relationship with a holy God. Because especially that moral law is a reflection of the character of God. So in our text, Paul is circling back to the law. And he's doing so because of something that he said in chapter 6, verse 14. He said in chapter 6, verse 14, For sin shall have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now listen, looking at that, that statement, especially the first half of that statement, those who were raised under the law might have a, a raised eyebrow. They might have questions about this. What are you saying, Paul? Are you saying that, that the law in some way is responsible for sin having dominion over us? And in other words, the law in some way is sinful, that it's not good, it's not holy. And so this is why Paul is circling back, because he knows this question has to be in the mind of both the Jews who were raised in the law and the Gentiles who perhaps had converted to Judaism. And then as Paul and the apostles came through, they then turned and they converted to Christianity. So he provides these people with a marriage analogy 
in order to help them to understand what he means. And in doing so, he really provides us with the foundation for the second question that's important for us to grapple with this morning. What does it mean to be, for the Christian to be dead to the law? He says in verse 4 that we're dead to the law, just like in chapter 6, he said that we were dead to sin. So what does it mean for us to be dead to the law? He does this by giving them a, he answers this by giving an illustration, a marriage illustration. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, he says in verse 1, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And then Paul gives a marriage illustration analogy that we can all relate to. He says, you know, when you are married to another person, um, you take a vow of fidelity. That means you will be sexually faithful to this person. You'll not have a relationship with someone else. And so uh, he continues with that analogy by then saying, however... If your spouse dies, you become a widow or a widower, your vows, the obligations that you had to that person are now ended and you are free to proceed with your life. And if you want to remarry someone, you can can do so. And so the point that he is making here with this analogy is here in verse four, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. He's talking about who? Christ, of course. In order that we may bear fruit for God. See, dying with Christ, as we pointed out in chapter six, has changed our relationship to the law. When we were united to Christ in his death, we died, he said in chapter six, at the very beginning to sin, and now he's saying we also died to the law. We're no longer bound, we're no longer united to either of these two things. In Romans chapter 10, verse four, he says Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, and in doing so, he brought an end to the Mosaic law. For us as Christians, our new life is no longer ruled by the law. Our new life is in the Holy Spirit, and he brings us to the law of Christ, which now governs our lives instead of the Mosaic law. He says in verse five, for while we were living in the flesh Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we're no longer in the life of the law. We now have the life in the spirit and we're under the law of Christ. This message that he's giving here is the same message that he, rep- he repeats to other churches. In Galatians chapter 5, he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so he's bringing out how once we come to Christ and we are now indwelt and baptized by the Holy Spirit, we have a new law that our allegiance is given to. It's the law of Christ. This changed Paul so dramatically. It changed how he did ministry, for example. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And notice what he says, though, though not being myself under the law. 
So I, I put myself voluntarily under aspects of the Mosaic law so that I could reach the Jews. But let me be clear, I am not under the Mosaic law. Why did I do this? So that I might win those who were under the law to those outside the law. I became as one outside the law. That doesn't mean, he says, that I lived however I wanted to live and that I lived lawlessly and an immoral life. Why? Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are outside the law. Since we share in Christ's death through our union with him, we're free from the Mosaic law. We've died to the Mosaic law and are under the law of Christ. We don't look to the Mosaic law for our salvation, and as much as we don't look to it for our salvation, we do not look to it for our sanctification either. I, many years ago, I worked uh, in a restaurant in the early 80s up in Chattanooga, and uh, oftentimes in our restaurant uh, would come families that were raised in Seventh-day Adventism. And back then, especially, and Seventh-day Adventism has evolved through the years, but back then, it was always interesting to have conversations because there were flavors of Seventh-day Adventism, just as there's flavors of Presbyterianism and Baptist and Methodist and whatever. And, and, and they were always the kindest, nicest people. They were always very, very particular. And, you know, they always tip exactly 15%. I mean, good, nice, and enjoyable people to talk to. And, of course, I would strike up conversations with them. And it was always interesting to me to see how some, uh, for example, this was actually, in that restaurant, was the first time I ever met anybody who was a vegetarian. I was like, what? You know? Why would you do that? You know, uh, don't you know what you're missing? But, and, and so in their explanation of why they were vegetarians, they brought me back to the law. And so it was an eye-opening experience to see uh, those who follow Christ or claim to follow Christ putting themselves under the law for how they live out the Christian life. Now, interestingly, some, I think, took it so far that the law and obedience to the law was actually their means to salvation. Uh, through the years, I think that the Adventism has changed, and they've come to understand that, no, we can't obey the law for our salvation. But yet, still, there is this allegiance to the Mosaic law for some that, that this is what it means to live the Christian life. But Paul says, no, we're not under the Mosaic law. Listen, this, the law, the Mosaic law was given to the nation of Israel. Most of the law was dealing with the civil and the ceremonial aspects. Now, God's moral law is still in place. I mean, you see this throughout the New Testament where God's moral law continues on. And, and ultimately, when the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ, you know what it's going to look like? It's going to look like the moral law of God. Okay, the, the Christian who is living by the Spirit their daily life looks like the moral law of God because God is forming this image within us. But placing ourselves under the law only uh, results in a man-made religion of works. This is the problem with it. And so tragically, even Christians who've been freed from the law will often make up their own law or cherry pick from the Mosaic law in order to measure their spirituality and convince themselves of their standing before God. 
And it's always easy to do this, and it's attempting to do this. It's, it's nice for us to have a clear checklist, that as long as I have these boxes checked, I'm good with God, and God's good with me. Okay? This is what the Pharisees were known for, right? And this is how the law becomes a means for salvation instead of a rule of life that was meant to be an evidence of salvation. When we understand and believe the gospel, we will not make the law our rule of life. Rather, we will appreciate the role that it is supposed to play. And so this leads us to an important truth. The law makes the sin nature show its true colors. If you really want to get down to the nub of the issue, why has God given us the law? It's in order to show the true colors of the sin nature, to help us to understand our situation. What shall we say, he says in verse 7, that the law is sin? By no means. Absolutely not. Absurd. Same language that he used back in chapter 6 when he said, are we to continue in sin? Absolutely not. The law has a very important role to play, including in our sanctification. But we are not under it, right? We're under the law of Christ. But the law of Christ does not contradict the law of God, okay? We need to understand this. They're in harmony with one another. So what does the law do? The law, first of all, there's three things I want to give you here this morning. The law, first of all, changes our perspective on our actions, our motives, and our attitudes. He says in verse 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Uh, listen, the law does something, and it did something for Paul. It, it, and it does it for us too. The law gives us you know, God's paradigm for evaluating whether or not an action or thoughts or attitudes are holy or sinful. Not only our actions, but the actions of our community and of our civilization. Are we in alignment with God? The law gives us a lens through which we can actually see whether or not an action or an attitude is holy or sinful. The law reveals sin's existence even when we think that we are morally upright and in good standing with God. You know, the, the common phrase was, well, I think that it's this, or I think, no, it's not what I think, God says, I've given you the law. And the law will tell you whether or not something is holy or sinful. Use it for its purpose in revealing the, and, and what something actually is. And when we do this, it will change our perspective. Things that we call holy and right and upright, we will be forced to say, no, that's not okay. Or we'll be forced to just deny the scriptures and go about our own way, living an idolatrous life. Paul's example is a good one. What he says his testimony was. Here's this man who was an incredibly fine and upstanding moral and religious person. I mean, let's remember that for us, the word Pharisee has become synonymous with hypocrite, right? But in the time that Paul lived, and in Jesus' time, the Pharisees were highly respected. Uh, they, they were morally upright, good citizens and people. Paul would say in, chapter, in Philippians chapter 3 that, you know, I, 
I obeyed the law. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was on the fast track to becoming a very well-respected leader within Judaism and especially within the group of the Pharisees. This is obvious from his, from his resume that you see in the book of Acts. And what does he say in chapter 3? He said, you know, I lived a holy life by the law. I obeyed the law. In other words, Paul could say, you know what? I didn't lie. I didn't kill. I didn't commit adultery. I put, I put God first. I honored him. I kept the Sabbath holy. I honored my father and my mother. But what he says here in Romans is, it was the 10th commandment <laughs> that got me. If you look real close, he says that if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, had not said, you shall not covet. When Paul applied the 10th commandment to his desires, the things in his life that he wanted, that, that he felt were perfectly acceptable, maybe moral or morally neutral, when he applied the law to those desires, he began to see, oh, wait a second. This isn't morally neutral. This isn't morally acceptable. This is covetousness that has been in disguise and it's deceived me to make me think that what is actually wrong and evil is good. I'm calling evil good and good evil. And so the 10th commandment changed his perspective on his own life and his own desires and how those desires were being expressed in his life. And he realized, I'm guilty of breaking it and I'm a sinner. What he actually thought was just simple desire was covetousness and sin. You know, Jesus employs the same aspect of the law in the Gospels. If you look at what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He takes our thought life and he applies the, thought, the, the law to our thought life. And those of us who said, oh, I have never murdered anybody. Now, when we apply the law the way it's supposed to be applied, we realize our disgust, our bitterness, our anger, our hatred towards someone else. According to the law, that's, that's, that's murder. Oh, I've never committed adultery. Oh, oh, but yeah, your, your lust, when you look at that woman, that guy, and there's this desire that wells up, and you give, and you coddle this desire, that sin, that is breaking the commandments of thou shalt not commit adultery. You see, the law changes the perspective that we have on not only our actions, but in particular, our desires, our attitudes, our thoughts. And when we take the time to begin asking ourselves the question, well, why do I think that way? Why am I feeling this way? What is driving this emotional response? And we, we begin to analyze that in light of God's law, we will often see sin at work in our lives. A second purpose for the law and how it shows sin's true colors is it actually reveals the magnitude of sin in our world and within us. He says in verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, well, so once I really got a grip on this and I started applying the law to my life, I saw sin was everywhere. I wasn't nowhere near as good as I thought I was. And this is what the law does. He, he says in Romans chapter 5, now the law came in to increase the trespass. 
In other words, to reveal to us that sin is everywhere. We just take the time to look and question ourselves and examine our motives and our actions and our thoughts. We will see that we are deeply corrupted by sin. This brings us to a third role that sin does, and and this is an interesting one. He says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What's he getting at here? This This is important. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. The law doesn't, not only shows us that something is actually sin, and it shows us that there's a lot of sin in our life, it does something even more interesting. It unmasks the pervasiveness and the insidiousness of our sin nature and the corruption that we have from that sin nature. All of us have experienced what Paul is getting at here, okay? Everyone, so let me, let me illustrate it to you like this. When I was in middle school, um, in, in, in children, you got to understand, the times have changed, right? And so those are like your parents and those of us who are older, um, there used to be a time when, you know, we would say like during summer break, right? Uh, you know, our parents, like at lunchtime, they'd feed us and then they would just kick us out of the house, and they would say, you can't come back inside until supper time at 6.30 tonight. And so you had like you know, six or seven hours that you had to entertain yourself w- without a device, right? But times were different. And so you could, you know, we would go everywhere. We would go blocks and even a mile. We'd walk everywhere. We would go to parks and because we just weren't as worried back then about, you know, bad people snatching or whatever. And so it was just a different time. But I remember when my mom, one time when she, you know, kind of booted me out of the house, she said, don't come back till supper time. And then she said something, but uh, listen, I don't want you going over to the houses on Detroit Circle. That's not a good area. I want you to stay away from that area and don't have anything to do with the kids over on Detroit Circle, okay? Now listen, until that time, I had never gone over to Detroit Circle. I had no interest in Detroit Circle. But the minute she said, don't go over to Detroit Circle, kids, what do you think I did? Yeah, I went over to Detroit Circle, right? And and this is something that all of us have happened, okay? When we are told not to do something, there's a desire that grows up into our hearts. Hey, Hey, kids, for example, children, it's bedtime, right? And your mom tells you, Go to bed. It's time to go to bed. It's time to turn out the lights. I don't want you to, do, uh, to read any more of that book that you've been reading, okay? It's time to go to bed. Or I don't want you to play any more on your, your device. It's time to go to bed. And so what do you do, right? You go to bed, and you lay there for a little bit. But what's going on inside of your head? What do you really want to do, right? Exactly. You want to read or play the game. And so you toss and you turn and you begin to think, you know what? I just can't sleep. I think I could go to sleep if I could just read my book a little bit more. And so you figure out a way 
to get that book. And maybe you're under the covers and you found a little light. You may have even earlier in the day snuck into the cabinet and got a flashlight and hid it under your bed, knowing that mom was going to tell you you couldn't read and you had to turn out the light so that you'd have a light to be able to see the book, right? I did this when I was a kid. My mom would tell me to go to bed, and I would say, yes, mom, no problem. I would go to bed, and I would keep the lights out, but I figured out that if I held the book up in front of my window a certain way, the streetlight gave me enough illumination, and I could read a book, and I would stay up for hours, and mom never knew, right? You ought to try that this night. You know, don't, don't do that, kids. Don't do that, okay? Don't do that, right? That's wrong. Hey, adults, we know exactly what Paul is getting at here. Um, I talked to a state trooper one time, and uh, we were having a conversation, and here I was, I was driving on this beautiful, you know, six-lane I-95, and, you know, and, and yet they post 70 miles an hour on this beautiful highway that it can easily handle cars going 90, Right? Or more. And so I was having a conversation with the state trooper that I didn't want to have. And <laughs> I asked, I said, why 70 miles an hour on this highway when it's just, I mean, nobody goes 70 miles an hour in Florida. If you do, you get hit from behind, right? And it was interesting what the state trooper said. He said, listen, we figured out a long time ago that if we say 70, you guys are going to do what? 80. And if we say 80, which is, you know, perfectly fine for this highway, what are you going to do? 90, right? And so they're building into the laws our propensity to sin and break the law the moment we're told not to do something. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Whenever we're told not to do something, temptation arises and sinful activity increases Uh, This is something that the Proverbs hit on. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. In other words, when you're told, don't eat that cookie, kids, your mom says, don't eat the cookies, they're saved for whatever, and you reach over, and when she's not looking, and you snatch off a little piece of it, or maybe the whole thing, and you eat that, right? Proverbs are saying, oh, doesn't it taste? It just seems to taste better. Why? That's sin in your life. Because the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a little season. And so the law actually helps us to see how pervasive the corruption of sin is in our life. And it shows us the true colors of our sin nature, how much there is sin and and what is actually sin, and how absolutely pervaded by sin and its corruption that we are. But the law also does something else, and I want to close with this one. The law reflects God's holiness, and since it reflects God's holiness, it ultimately points us to Christ, and it ultimately becomes the source of true holiness. So the law is holy, he says in verse 12. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. As Paul tells the Galatians, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. You see, the law has a very holy and high purpose. 
It drives us to Christ. It shows us our need, how much we are in need of a Savior to be rescued from our sins. It shows us as Christians how much in need we are of God's grace in sanctification as we are in justification. We are totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit and God's grace to obey the law of Christ. He said in verse five, chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded more. This is what the law does for us. You know, the law helps us to realize, to kind of paraphrase uh, Tim Keller, that we are more sinful than we ever think ourselves to be. But we are, in Jesus Christ, loved by God more than we can ever imagine and dream ourselves to be. And this is what the law does. It helps us to realize how sinful we are. And it points us to Christ where we find the grace of God poured out on the cross for us, for our sins. And so if you don't know Christ this morning, and you're trying to relate to God through good acts of deeds that are right in your own eyes, understand that will only lead to death. Trying to relate to God through good acts and obedience and self-righteousness only leads to death. The way to God comes through Christ, the grace that he gives us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your law. Thank you for providing us salvation in Jesus Christ. To those who don't know you this morning, Lord, maybe they have seen themselves as a good and upright person, perfectly okay with you because of what a nice guy or nice gal they are. Lord, I would pray this morning that you would begin to open their eyes. May the law do its work in their hearts and help them to see the magnitude and the quantity and the, the depth of the corruption of sin that all of us have and are born with. And may the law drive them to you, Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness and salvation from their sins. And Lord, for those of us who call on you, give us the grace that we need not to go back to the law of Moses, but instead live under your law, Jesus Christ. May we know your grace today and this week so that we may more reflect that moral law of God, which is holy and good. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.